music, I almost forgot that I was meant to get up and read the Bible. But here we are. Um, hi, if I haven't met you, my name is Beth, and it's so nice to see you and imagine your presence uh, if you're at home. And I'm going to read the Bible. Uh, I'm using the blue Bibles, which are in your pews, um, or it will be on the screen. And we're reading Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And I'm going to pray for Miriam as she comes to speak to us. Our Lord God, will you bless her words uh, and her mind and her heart um, as she prepares to lead us through this passage uh, and all that we can glean from it. Um, and your history, Jesus, as an infant. Um, just Holy Spirit, inspire uh, her words and open our hearts to uh, receive something new from you today and grow a little bit closer to you in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Beth. All right, the mast is going down there. Okay. A while ago when I was preparing to preach, I said to Nick, I, um, I haven't figured out how not to be nervous before I stand up. Nick said, well, I've been preaching for 20 years, so if you find out, let me know. I just find that comforting. My name's Miriam, if we haven't met. Let's explore this passage together. I 
voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What do we do with that? I'm going to explore this passage in reverse. Why? Not just because I like being contrary, but because it's a chunky passage, there's a lot in it and a lot of questions to ask, and sometimes it's best just to address the elephant or the massacre in the room. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. A madman is threatened by the rumoured existence of a child, so he murders dozens of them. Or more recently, in Tibet, a child is appointed to be the new incarnation, the new spiritual leader of Tibetan Buddhism without the um, input of the appropriate authorities, and so that child just disappears. What about Myanmar, when entire villages are wiped out by the military? What do we do with these stories? And what do we do with the questions that they raise? How do we grapple with them? Why those children? Why did they have to die? Where is the merciful God? Jesus has literally just arrived. Hasn't God won? I love this painting because it captures the miracle of the Magi and the weariness of the Holy Family fleeing to Egypt and also the death that haunts their steps all along the way. About five years ago, I had the privilege to um, travel to Turkey, to a city called Istanbul, and to work with Syrian refugees there. And I spent three months there uh, interpreting for women who came to particular aid programs, um, from Arabic to English, to help them access the aid they needed, or just in their conversations and everyday interactions with support programs. And I got to meet women who had fled Syria with their families and sometimes with their husbands. Um, Sometimes their husbands were back in Syria or were dead or were elsewhere in Europe trying to seek asylum for the family. And I was only there for those three months, uh, but when I came back, I was receiving text messages from friends I had made, women who I considered my sisters, my friends, my mothers, and they were telling me about their experiences and what was happening. And they were saying, well, should we stay here or should we try and make it across the water to Greece where so many have drowned? One of my friends messaged me uh, maybe three weeks after little Iran Kurdi, um, the little boy who drowned and whose picture was all over the news. And she said, I don't know whether to take this boat trip. And she had a son of the same age. And I felt broken when I came back. I was really, really just like angry all the time. And for about six months, I was about as grumpy as they come. And I was kind of a jerk. And you can ask my parents, and I'm sorry, mum and dad. Um, They were very gracious, but I was just mad because I couldn't make sense of the fact that I could get on a plane and have a ticket that I had pre-purchased that was paid for by funds raised by churches that I had attended uh, to a country that allowed me to be its citizen, that treated me with safety, that I could get up and leave. Uh, and that these friends of mine, these incredible people, were stuck, and they didn't have that privilege. And after about six months of just kind of being a jerk to everyone around me and being really angry, a friend challenged me as to why I was so angry all the time. Uh, And finally I was able to articulate to them, well, actually it's because I can't understand why I can leave and others can't, and I just, it's not fair. 
and I almost yelled at them, it's not fair. And this friend said, amongst other, you know, encouraging things, he said, where did God promise fair? Where did God promise fair? And I wanted to answer him that God had promised fair in this particular verse, um, but instead it kind of took my breath away, and I kind of hated that. Where did God promise fair? And perhaps you too have cried out against unfairness. And perhaps you too know some of that kind of grief. And perhaps you've had to flee from domestic violence or from a war-torn home. And perhaps you have lost a child from illness or accident, miscarriage, abortion or stillbirth. And you have grieved and cried out. And it is right to cry out against that. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But this isn't the end of the story. There's no easy answer in this passage or in life. I can give you theological frameworks. There's the doctrine of free will uh, that explains how sin exists in the world. There's the doctrine of original sin and total depravity that explains just how bad humans can get and why. There's even context for this particular situation. Herod, known as the Great, a title given to him by uh, the Roman appointees of his throne, uh, was known for building lots of great temples. He built up the temple in Jerusalem. He also built up a bunch of other pagan temples. But he was also known for killing anyone who threatened his rule. He held on to his rule for 30 years uh, in a land that was often rebellious and restive. And he did that through killing those who got in his way, uh, often members of his family, his own sons, and his mother, and more. I can argue philosophy and theology and context until I'm blue in the face, but still, we want to and we need to cry out, why? Now, there's surprising hope in the passage itself. A voice is heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning. That quote is from the book of Jeremiah. And it goes like this. Perhaps strangely, it comes from a chapter that in our English Bibles is subtitled, The Lord Will Turn Mourning Into Joy. And it takes place when Jeremiah is prophesying both an exile and a redemption. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations, he says. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them again and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil, the young of flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. 
Your children will return to their own land. Matthew loves to reveal how Jesus has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And so in his description of Jesus as a young child and his circumstances, he shows how he fulfills this passage in Jeremiah. But he also points to how Jesus will fulfill this redemption that is promised, this great redemption and healing that will come. The suffering caused by a sinful world under the physical and spiritual enemy occupation as the Romans occupied in that time, it still exists, but it's not the end of the story. It is real, but it is not the whole picture. Jesus has come, is transforming the world, but that transformation isn't complete while he gives us more time, while he gives his people more time to come to him. So hope can and does remain, even alongside grief. And in some senses, the death of the innocents actually foreshadows the death of the Messiah. They died sort of in his place because of jealous rulers who were fearful of his role and his power. And even more than, he would die in their place, ostensibly at the hand of jealous religious leaders, but even more to take into his own body the sin that caused their death and the brokenness of the world that allowed for it and to offer us new life. One of my favourite books is called Cry the Beloved Country. Can I just get a show of hands? Anyone who's heard of it, read it? All right. Can I highly recommend it? Um, It is written and set in South Africa uh, and the protagonist is a priest who has lost, progressively lost family members um, to different calls of the world, let's say, uh, to crime and to the punishment that comes with it, to the lust of power, um, to lust of money and sex and wealth and drugs and rock and roll and all of that. Nothing wrong with rock and roll. So he has gone to the big city to seek them out. And as a priest, as he's doing this, he's trying to find his son, his sister and his brother who disappeared. And he's trying to grapple with and understand what it means to love God in those circumstances. And the whole book is following that journey of his. And at the end, he comes back to his village uh, to await an impending death that he knows is coming and that he can't stop. And he is processing and grieving. And he greets his friend. And he talks to him about this. And his friend says, I never thought that a Christian would be free of suffering. For our Lord suffered. And I come to believe that he suffered not to save us from suffering, but to teach us how to bear suffering. For he knew that there is no life without suffering. In this world, there will always be suffering. And yet we still have hope. And so Mary and Joseph are called up in the night, and they flee to Egypt. And here Jesus fulfills another prophecy, spends time in Egypt, and moves back to Nazareth. And again, out of Egypt, I've called my son is fulfilled. But in the meantime, God knows and remembers the blood of the innocents, which cries out to him from the ground. He does not forget. He grieves the consequences of a fallen world even more than we can. I'd like to read a short excerpt I wrote about my time in Istanbul. Can I draw you a picture? We're in a stuffy little room with several rows of chairs, and a big projector screen. On the screen is a picture of Damascus, the city. 
I sat behind a woman in black hijab and a boisterous little boy sitting on her lap, and she is softly weeping. I reach forward and put my hand on her shoulder, and she holds my hand, and so we sit. I spent many afternoons in this community. Syrian women would gather here to chat over tea, Nescafe and biscuits, relishing the chance to speak their own language and perhaps just see some faces from home. They were often here without their husbands, raising kids trying to survive in a foreign land with little to no income. Their menfolk back in Syria or in Europe to seek asylum. The women shared about family back home or relatives with depression, children who developed anorexia as a way of coping with the stress or fears for their children's future and education and life. They discussed religion and prayer, but never politics. And they chuckled over their husbands' funny traits or relaxed while their kids played with paint and Play-Doh. Sometimes we would watch a film clip and discuss it. And one particular Saturday, that clip was from a Syrian movie on the life of St. Paul. Filmed in Syria's capital, it was full of shots of modern-day Damascus to show where events really happened, Straight Street, which still exists, and Ananias' house, which has been turned into a church. And the camera panned across the city skyline as it was back before the war, with sights so very familiar to me and to these women. As the panorama of the city flowed across the screen, the sense of sorrow filled the air as women saw their home as it once was, beautiful, full of life and history. And a woman, a woman seated in front of me began to weep. Her little boy sat on her lap, bewildered, with straight black hair and big curious eyes just like hers. But his cheeky face was now serious as he was trying to comfort her, her little five-year-old son. What can you do in that moment? So I went and I got some tissues and I held her hand and tried to feel a little of her sorrow. Where is God in our 18 world? During debrief that afternoon, someone on the team that ran that space asked, what was good today? And I got a little mad because perhaps that's the wrong question. Why do we ask what is good in the face of grief and trauma? Why belittle the grief of our guests or Christ's deep relevance in that grief? Isn't this the Christ who fled as a tiny boy himself, a refugee with his mother and father, while the children of his neighbours were massacred? Perhaps he too wiped away his mother's tears. Isn't this Jesus who cried over a vision of his city destroyed, the places he used to run, play, learn and teach, brought to the ground? Why ask what was good rather than where is Christ in this? So where was Jesus in the murder of the innocents? In the midst of all of it, is Jesus barely old enough to know the world? But the world knows about him, and things are moving and shifting around him. In Luke's account of the nativity, his great passion for those who are poor or the underdog, he describes the shepherds who were called to come and witness the birth. But Matthew he describes a different encounter, so one that occurred two years later, still in Bethlehem, where Mary and Joseph had settled down with Jesus after he was born. And some travelers came from afar. And Matthew was always focused on how he could show the Jewish readers that actually Jesus was the culmination of their story, of God's story. And yet he was the only one, the only one of the gospel writers, who includes the Gentile Magi, the strangers in a strange land following a strange star. 
Now, Laura noted that we haven't taken the Christmas decorations down, uh, and that's not just because, you know, it's a two-man job and everyone's been on holidays and I haven't gotten around to it yet. It's also because, actually, on January 6th, this week just passed, we celebrated the 12th day of Christmas. So everyone knows the song? And they start from the 25th of December and they come through to the 6th of January. And on the 12th day of Christmas, we remember the epiphany, that is, the moment when the wise men came to meet Jesus. And that is when we remember it. Because the Xmas story, the Christmas story, doesn't just end with the birth of Jesus and then we pack everything away until Easter. Life moves on and God moves on in the in-between times. He continues to work and he was continuing to work in this instance. Mary and Joseph had been settled in Bethlehem for those two years since his birth. They lived a normal Hebraic life, probably, and maybe a few people remembered the shepherds who had run around yelling about a Messiah being born. And maybe a few others remembered Simeon and Anna prophesying on the steps of the temple. But for the most part, they were your regular Joe Blow, you know, neighbours with a toddler. And then two years later, another group of messengers show up. Now, we don't know much about the Magi, even what the word is. We know that uh, it could mean wise men, as it's used in the Old Testament, or it could mean sorcerers or magicians, as it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. We know they're probably wealthy because of their gifts. Uh, They're educated. They're astronomers. But we don't know how they know what the star meant. Have you ever wondered that? The star appears, and they're like, aha, a king. That's not what I think when I see a star. I think, aha, the star. That's, that's as far as it gets from me. And yet they knew that there was a king, and they knew he was in Jerusalem. Now, commentators say that there are three maybe possibilities for how the Magi knew that the star meant something important. It could be that they were descended from Jewish exiles in Babylon, and so they had cultural and historical and textual knowledge to draw from. It could be that they just loved studying ancient manuscripts. They were your your academics of the day, and they did research, and they tried to gather everyone's information. And so they'd heard about this king in Jewish literature. Or perhaps God told them some other way, and we don't know. But what we do know is they travelled from the east, because it says so in the passage, probably from Persia or Iraq or somewhere in that region. And they would have travelled about 2,000 kilometres, which is the distance from Tehran in modern-day Iran through to Jerusalem, as it is now. Uh, And according to Google Maps... That would take about six weeks at least by foot or perhaps by camel. So they've set out, they've travelled 2,000 kilometres for about six weeks and we know that the star appeared and disappeared at different times. So it appeared, it indicated somehow that they should go to Jerusalem and then they went to Jerusalem but they didn't know where to go next. And so they arrive in Jerusalem they start asking around and they asked for the one born king of the Jews. And this gets back to Herod, and no wonder he's freaked out, because Herod, with his, uh, his role given to him by the Romans, had also been given a title. He was called the King of the Jews. But he was very much not one born to this role. And he very much was holding on to it out of his own power and cruelty and cunning. And so here are these men who are coming and saying, who is the one who was actually born to this role, who was rightfully the King of the Jews? And Herod freaks out. So he calls the Magi to him, finds out a bit more from his own um, prophets and advisors and the chief priests and says, okay, go to Bethlehem. That's where you need to go next and then come back and tell me. And so they travel to Bethlehem and then the star reappears and shows them what house to go to, which I just think is brilliant. It's better than Google Maps. And so they get there 
And isn't it amazing how God uses not just the star, but also Herod, and also all of the advisors in Jerusalem to direct them to Bethlehem, and then the star again. Even those who would want to kill the Messiah, God uses to point the Magi to him. God uses so many things to nudge us. So what do we do with the star? I don't think we're meant to read it as, you know, stars will show us where Jesus will return to earth. Um, In fact, I can guarantee that we're not meant to, just to be really clear on that. That's not how we're meant to read the stars. How are we meant to take it, though? Some commentators say that it means that God speaks to each of us in ways that we'll understand, different languages, different styles of communication. And certainly that exists in the Bible, and we see even in Pentecost the disciples standing and speaking in languages that are understood by many. But there are limits to this. These illusions, these reflections, these shards of truth that exist all over the world in religions and in cultures all around, they tell some of the story, but they don't tell the whole story. And they can distort it. For example, Jesus is recorded in the Quran as this beautiful prophet. But if that's all you know, then that's just, he's just an interesting man. Isn't that nice? And for example, Simeon, the sorcerer in Acts, he's heard about the power of the Holy Spirit. He knows there's something special about this. He knows power, but he completely misses the point about the character of God. But these glimpses can push people to seek further and to try and understand. For example, there are so many accounts of Muslims who have heard of Jesus, who have read about him in their book, and then gone to seek out, who is this prophet? Is there something special about him? Who is this one who actually might be more than a prophet? Who is the son of God? And we see here in the Magi, who traveled 2,000 kilometers. They could have just stayed home and said, great, okay, there's a king coming. We'll wait till he grows up and he shifts a few things around and then we'll see what the socioeconomic political situation's like and then we'll decide what we do. No, they up and traveled 2,000 kilometers to find out what this guy was about, what this baby, this king was going to bring. They didn't want to worship from a distance. Did they find out what they sought? Did they understand what they were encountering? So often we have questions in our life that challenge our faith, that make us wonder, is is Jesus who he really says he is? Who is this guy in the Bible? And we actually have a choice at that point, whether we let those questions push us away from God or towards. Questions are intense, but they are not a thing that destroys faith. We have a decision with what we do with them. And so did the Magi. Now, it is good to be wary of non-biblical revelation, As Christians, we're taught, you know, we read the Bible, we interpret it through the Holy Spirit, and we understand it as a community in Christ. And it is good to test the spirits, as we're told, but don't be too quick to shut the doors that God is opening in your own or in others' lives to look towards God and to see those glimpses of truth, those shards of beauty and light that point towards him. Perhaps even there are cracks in our own armor that God is whispering through. The Magi might have worshipped the stars, But in the end, they allowed it to point them to the creator. So who do we encounter? Who have have been given stars in our lives? People in our workplaces, on public transport, uh, in our community groups, our footy clubs, who have these glimpses, these snippets of, of truth and of life. Where do we see them? And who are our own lives are we encouraging to look towards the ultimate star, the ultimate light. 
So looking back to the Magi, there is so much that we don't know. We went, know they got to Bethlehem and they saw Jesus, they gave him the presents, uh, and then they worshipped him, so they knew he was someone special. But what happened next? Did they talk to Mary and Joseph? Did they have a shared language? Did they discuss, well, this was my revelation, what was yours? What do you think this Messiah thing's all about? And this kid, is he, is he going to grow up to be someone special or is he just going to, you know, um, be a figurehead? What do you think's going on? We only really know that they knew enough about God to be able to hear him in a dream, directing them away from Herod. Now, also in the Bible, there's so many unknown endings. We have Melchizedek in the Old Testament, this prince of peace, this prophet that Abraham encounters, and we don't know what happened to him after that. What about Moses' father-in-law? Moses takes off with all of Israel. Did he go too, or did he stay in the desert? What about the demoniac in the New Testament whom Jesus healed and he begged to be part of Jesus' disciples and Jesus said, no, you need to stay and minister to your own community. And what about the rich young ruler who Jesus challenged and he went away sadly, but what was the end of that story? What about the Ethiopian eunuch who was baptized by Philip out in the desert? We don't know what happened next with them. Who are you encountering in your life? I remember once I was in a backpackers hostel in New Orleans and I met this lass, this English girl, and we hung out for maybe three days because that's how backpackers hostels work and then you all go in your own way. But we're Facebook friends. Thank you, Facebook. And maybe a year later, she got in touch and she said, right, I'm coming to Australia. When are you going to be there? I'm here for these two weeks in Melbourne. And of those two weeks, I had one day between beach mission and another summer camp of some sort uh, when I could catch up with her. And the first time I met her... Uh, we had a lot of fun, but she was very, any time we started to talk about anything that might to do with faith, she was very spiky. I was like, right, okay, that's okay, it's okay, we don't have to talk about it, we can leave it, that's fine. So we didn't talk about it. But a year later, something had happened, she'd been to a party, a celebration, there'd been probably some, I think, some substances going on, and something had happened that had really challenged her perspective on spirituality. It kind of freaked her out, but she wanted to ask some questions about what happened next. And so then we started talking about what do I believe and why? We sat down in a pub, we had our beers, we discussed our life stories. And then she went on her way. And every year or two, you know, well, before COVID, she comes back to Australia or, you know, I end up somewhere where she is and we talk about this. And I don't know what's going to happen next. Or when I was 15 and I'd come home from boarding school and I was visiting my parents and I was bored because it was in the middle of the summer and there was nothing to do. And uh, my dad was running a teacher training course at a local centre. And he came home one day and he said... He's a very visual teacher, my dad, very, you know, interactive and active. And uh, he said, well, I was, builds up his story. I was teaching and I was, you know, talking to the class and there's just this one student who won't meet my eye and I can't figure out, she, she annoyed at me, is she offended by something I've said, is my fly undone, what's going on, why is she not making eye contact with me? And after the class, I go to my boss and I say, there's just a student who won't meet my eye, what's going on? And my boss says, oh, yeah, sorry, there's a blind student in your class. And Dad's like, right, okay, so all of my visual aids are not going to work in this situation. So he comes home and he says, well, you have nothing to do all summer. Do you want to come in and be a teacher's aide and just kind of interpret some of these visual aids to this student? So I got to come in and I got to meet this woman, we'll call her Rebecca. Rebecca was amazing, one of the most impressive women I've ever met. Brilliant, intelligent, could, had been blind, had developed blindness sort of as a child, so she knew some visual cues and she could visualise a chessboard in her mind and play chess and had won championships. And, um, and she travelled around this Arabic city all by herself and I was just so impressed with her. And she came and started spending time with our family and she started asking about what we believed. 
So we told her a bit about this man called Jesus, this God called Jesus. And at one point she started attending a church and she had some dreams that pointed her towards the divine. And after a while her family found out about what was happening and they got really scared that they were going to lose her from what they believed to be the truth. And so they said, all right, well, you can't leave the country anymore and you can't go to church and you need to marry this man who's a Muslim who's also blind. So they hurried her off into this marriage and and that was it. That was the last we heard of her. Actually, no, the last I heard of her, I searched her email address uh, when I was a few years later and I was wondering what was happening. And there was a Facebook post from her saying, hi, my name is Rebecca. My husband and I are both blind. We're Syrian refugees. We've fled to Cairo. We're living in this apartment that is filthy and awful. We're trying to raise our son and we need some aid. Can anyone help? And that's all I know. I have no idea what's happened next. But I know God does. And I know he cares. And all I can do is pray when I think of her, that God has remembered her, like we do. And I know he does. Who are you encountering in your life? Who are you crossing paths with briefly, once a year, once in a backpacker's hostel, once in a pub over a beer? Who are you walking with in your workplace, in your family, in your communities? Who can you point to the suffering servant, the wounded healer, who died to take into his body that brokenness and who is also the ultimate light? As you go into your week, can I challenge you to think about who are those people in your life who have those glimpses of light that they are encountering and perhaps you are that glimpse of light. Are you going to tell them more? Okay. Let's worship.